Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, hey, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's just a joy to have you with us today. We are really grateful you're here on this President's Day weekend. Hope you and your family uh, and friends have just a great time this weekend. Uh, quick announcement, and then we're going to jump into our time in the scriptures today. Uh, our team is beginning a search for a new executive pastor. And um, we just want to invite you to pray with us about that hire. It's gonna be someone who will help um, oversee our staff, a chief of staff of sorts, and a number of other responsibilities that this person uh, will have. And so um, I'm, I'm telling you that for two reasons. Number one, so that you can join us in praying that God would lead us to the right person. And that secondly, if you know anybody in, in your network, that we should um, contact or that you'd like to send uh, the job description to, it will be live on our website uh, tomorrow or Tuesday. So we would love to invite you into that process with us. I was a freshman in college when our young life leaders invited us over to their house for dinner. It was a Tuesday night and the leader of the group stood up in front of us and said, hey, I'd like to have everybody over to my house next Tuesday. And so as a freshman in college, having eaten in the dorms for months on end, I didn't forget that invite. I had a hard time remembering when my papers were due, but if you invited me over for dinner, I wasn't going to forget. And so the next Tuesday, my roommate and I showed up at the house of Ashley and Becky. Ashley was the guy that invited us to come to dinner and his wife, Becky, opened the door. And it was one of those looks that you never forget because she was absolutely in shock to see us standing there. You know that look? And we said to her, hey, Ashley invited us over for dinner today. And she said, oh, he did, did he? <laughs> now I've been married a few decades now, so I get that look, that miscommunication, right? Now, most normal people would say, hey, if you weren't expecting us, no big deal. We'll just go back to our dorm and eat the dorm food and then maybe we could reschedule and come back to your house at some point in the future. But I think you probably know by now, I am not normal people. <laughs> and so when she said, well, I'm sure we have enough food. You could definitely come and join us for dinner today. We said, right on. And so there we were, we, luckily for them, we were the only two people who remembered. I'm not sure how that worked out, but maybe, maybe it wasn't an actual invite. I don't know, but there we were, my roommate and I sitting at their table with the two of them and their young child, enjoying a beef stew for two, stretched to go amongst four. And here's the feeling that I had, that I, while I was welcomed in, I knew I wasn't really wanted at that table. Like, like it was an obligation that they had because I was standing at their door to say, well, well, sure, come on in and why don't you have a seat? And I'm sure we maybe have enough food for you. And I, I have this deep seated suspicion that there are some people in this room that feel that same way about the presence of God. Like, like he welcomes you because he has to, he's God but he also holds you at an arm's length distance because he knows you, he's God. And so while we're invited in, 
we have this sort of, this base level conviction that we shouldn't be there. And the whole meal, the whole meal, I'm sitting there eating like this little bowl of soup. And I'm thinking, I shouldn't be here. I should be in the dorms eating whatever they're serving. I shouldn't be here. And and here's the deal. Some of you walk in these doors every Sunday, sit down in these chairs every Sunday, and your thought is, I shouldn't be here. And, And maybe, just maybe, if God really knew who I was, where I've been, what I've done, if he really knew some of the darkness in my life, if he really knew the sin I was struggling with, if he really knew the addiction that I was trying to battle unsuccessfully, if he knew the darkness that was in my past and the things waiting for me in the future, certainly he might welcome me, but he would not accept me. He might welcome me, but he would certainly hold me at an arm's length distance. And I'm convinced, friends, I'm convinced that this kind of thinking has rendered so many followers of Jesus powerless. Powerless. And I have good news for you this morning. If you believe that, it's a lie. It's a lie. And it breaks my heart that there are so many followers of Jesus who believe that they're saved enough to go to heaven when they die but believe that they are rejected enough right now to have their lives devoid of the power that the spirit would love to bring. And so over the next few minutes, I just wanna do my best to blow up that lie with the grace of God and to speak a better word over your life. Would you let me do that? Would you open your Bible, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And as you turn there, let me sort of remind you of where we've been over the last few weeks. We're in this series that we're calling This Is Our Story, where we're looking at a parable that Jesus told. And remember, the parables that Jesus told weren't just intended to communicate some objective truth, like know these facts and walk away from the story, being able to check these boxes, but they were intended to create space for us to climb up inside of and explore our own lives and what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. So these stories are, are, are meant to evoke questions in us that the gospel would, would be the answer to. The very beginning of this story, Jesus says that there were two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. This father cashes out his property, gives the younger son his share, and the younger son goes to a far country and blows it all on reckless and wild living. One day he wakes up in this pig pen, looks around and goes, how in the world did my life turn out like this. He had this awakening moment where he comes to his senses and he decides, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to do my best to just talk him into letting me be like one of his servants, one of his slaves living on his land. At least then I'll have enough food to eat. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 20, that's where we pick up our story. Says, and he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. This is the speech that he'd prepared. And I get the sense that his father almost interrupts him, or the son gets to the end of his prepared speech, and the father goes, like, is that is that all? But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand 
and put shoes on his feet. The, the younger son expects or maybe just hopes beyond a shadow of a doubt, maybe just like, just maybe the, the father will welcome me back, but certainly I'll be on the outskirts of his property. <laughs> uh, Tim Keller, pastor and author, wrote a brilliant book on this parable entitled The Prodigal God. And in that book, he says, the word prodigal is defined as recklessly lavish. And he says, if anybody in the story is recklessly lavish, it's the father. It's, it's God showering grace and mercy on his younger son who squandered his property. It's God who's welcoming his son Home, And I wonder if the father says to his son, a, a servant in my house, like over my dead body. And I wonder if he winked and said, remember how you wished I was dead? <laughs> over my dead body, you're not one of my servants. You're, you're my son and no amount of sin could ever rob you of being my son. It's interesting, some scholars would write about this parable and they would say it's an incomplete retelling of salvation through Jesus. And their argument is the parable doesn't have any explicit declaration about atonement in it. Uh, sin just seems to be forgiven. It's not, it's not paid for, as it were. And I would say, oh no, no. There's actually two pictures of atonement in this parable. The first is when the younger son comes to his father and says, give me my share of the property. The scriptures say that the father divided his life and gave his younger son the property. The second picture of atonement is of the father running towards his son where he accepts where he receives on his own shoulders the shards of the broken relationship, the, the pain of a love that's rejected. He's taking the slap in the face, as it were, and he's offering redemption to his son free of charge. He is doing what Paul would write later to the Corinthian church. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the what? the righteousness of God. The father endures the cost of the son's squandering and the shame of his rejection. He takes the full weight of it upon his shoulders and he runs towards him with compassion and kindness in his eyes, welcoming him home. This friends is a picture of the way that Jesus runs toward us and then to the cross, taking the full weight of our sin on his shoulders, paying the penalty for it, burying it in the ground, and then rising with new life in his hands. It's costly love that welcomes us home. But here's my question. What kind of process is the father gonna go through to welcome his son back. I mean, he's been slapped in the face. He's been disrespected publicly. He's been, he's been shamed. I mean, certainly there's gonna be some limitations to what this younger son is able to do. Uh, certainly there's gonna be some process 
that the younger son needs to walk through to, to prove the fact that his repentance is genuine, that he's not just gonna use his father and disregard him once again and wander away. I mean, I mean, undoubtedly, there's got to be some sort of test, some sort of restoration plan for the younger son to walk through so that the father can know he won't be in the same position again. And certainly, all those things are really good and really healthy in human relationships. I'm not down on any of them. But let's look at the father's restoration plan. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly, like right now, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Quick, do it right now. Not like go get it ready for in six months when he has proven himself worthy, then you can deliver it. And not, let's put him through a series of tests just to see if this repentance is genuine. No, it's immediate and abundant blessing. I mean, the father almost appears to be giddy in welcoming his son home. He's giving him new life and it's new life that happens not after a process, but immediately. And I think this picture of restoration is so powerful because I think there are a lot of people in this space, maybe watching online, who you believe that God has forgiven you fully, but that he also carries bitterness towards you. You believe that he's washed the slate clean, but that when you're sitting at his table, it's an awkward dinner because you're thinking, I know he doesn't want me here. And he couldn't want me here because of the places that I've been, the decisions that I've made, the things that I have been a part of. And I am here to tell you this morning, the truth of the matter is that he is 100% for you in every way. He doesn't just forgive you, he welcomes you. And he doesn't just welcome you, he longs to restore you because God doesn't only welcome us home, he restores us to whole. He doesn't just welcome us home, give us a seat at his table at a really awkward dinner where we look like the whole time, I shouldn't be here, I shouldn't be here, I shouldn't be here. No, he weaves us back together and makes us whole. This word restoration, every time I hear it, I, I think of a, of, of, a, of a story, part of a history that just comes back to mind. It was 1498 when Michelangelo Michelangelo was commissioned to sculpt uh, Pieta. He would later go on to say that this was his crowning work, his crowning achievement, so much so that this was the only piece that he signed. So he said, this is, like, this is it. Uh, Pieta was um, undisturbed from the time it was created until 1972 when somebody broke into the place it was displayed with a hammer and started to go at it. Well, shortly thereafter, the, um, it was commissioned that the sculpture should be restored. <laughs> it was put back together using a, a specially made invisible glue and powder that was created out of the same kind of marble that Michelangelo made. 
Now, if you were to go today to where it's located, you wouldn't be able to tell that anything had ever happened to it. In fact, somebody came up to me after last service and said, I was there just a few months ago. And I said, well, could you please tell me I'm right? (laughs) And he goes, yeah, you can't tell. You cannot tell anything had happened. Friends, this is the very thing that God does for us. He doesn't just welcome us home. He pieces us back together one bit at a time. As the apostle Paul would write to the church in Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, friends, behold, the new has come. That is exactly what the father does for his younger son upon his repentance. He doesn't just welcome him home. He restores him to whole. But he does so using some some symbols that really meant something to the people back in Jesus's day. And, And some of their weight and luster have been lost on us because they don't mean the same thing in our day and time. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna talk about the way that God not only welcomes us, but restores us to whole through four, the pictures of four symbols. A robe, a ring, shoes, and a cow. You ready? First, the father says, but bring the best robe quickly. Bring the best robe quickly. Uh, We often in our day and time view clothes as a a status symbol. Um, Oh my goodness, they're wearing Gucci. Or is that a Louis Vuitton bag? You've got to be kidding me, right? And they're in essence, a a status symbol. And the same was true back in Jesus's day. When the father says quickly, bring the, the best robe and put it on him. He's saying to everybody in their village, my son is once again, worthy of respect. He's worthy of honor. Treat him as you would treat me. It's a picture of the father giving his son back the honor that he lost when he left. Now, and here's what strikes me. Here's what I would expect. The father would say to his son, the son has been sleeping in a pig pen. He's been feeding pigs. He's filthy. I would expect the father to say, hey, here's the deal. Go take a shower and then we'll get you the robe and we'll put it on you once you're clean and we'll go from there. But he doesn't. I think there are a lot of Jesus followers who think that God says to us, go get clean and then come back. Go, go, go make yourself right and then come back and then I can welcome you. But friends, that is not our story. That is not the gospel story. Not only that, But in a patriarchal society, whose robe would have been the best robe? The father's. So the father is essentially saying to his servants, go get my robe and put it on my filthy son who rejected me publicly, who shamed me wildly and cover him in my robe. Cover him in my righteousness. Everybody treat him like you would treat me. 
Friends, don't miss this. In theological terms, we call this justification. This is the good news that God covers us with his own righteousness. Doesn't say to us, go get clean. He says, I will make you clean. From the very beginning, we see Adam and Eve in the garden. They reject God. And it says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. He covered them. He didn't say, go, go work this out on your own. He said, I will make sacrifice for you to be covered. It's a picture in the scriptures of salvation and of restoration. It's the reason that the prophet Isaiah would write, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Not because I've worked it all out. Not because I've accomplished it on my own for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Isaiah says God's covering of us makes us look like a bride who's getting ready for her wedding or like a husband who's longing to meet his wife. That's the picture of salvation that Jesus paints in this story. Oh, friends, oh, friends. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Here's a beautiful truth, you guys. We come as we are dirty, messed up, broken, and crawling back to the throne and he restores us to be whole. Oh, what a beautiful picture. It goes on and it says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and a ring on his hand. Now, in our society, rings are typically just for show. I mean, they might show, they have symbolic power. It might show that you're married. It might show that you graduated from a certain school in a certain year. They might show that you won the big game. A ring might show that you're really, really wealthy. <laughs> Today, rings have a, they have a symbolic power. But back in Jesus's day, they had a literal power. See, most suggest that the ring that this son got was called a signet ring. And a signet ring was the way that families did business. So in order to step into a contract, you had to have a signet ring. So to uh, establish a business deal, you had to have the signet ring and they would make a mark in order to say, this has been legitimized by the family. To have a will solemnized, you had to have signet ring. A marriage, signet ring. It was a way that families did official business. How great is this picture? The son is welcomed home by his father and immediately clothed in honor and given authority. Given authority. Friends, that means that from the moment you become a follower of Jesus, you are fully a part of his family. From day one, the spirit of God lives in you and you have authority in Christ. Listen to the way that Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out. And he says, and he called the 12 together and he gave them, just read this with me, church. He gave them power and authority 
over all demons and to cure diseases and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And Jesus says, I'm sending the helper to be with you. And because I'm sending the helper, you will do greater things than I. Friends, we have authority as Jesus followers. We have authority to call on the name of God, to pray, to see people healed, to see people restored, to see demons cast out, to see people brought back. Does it happen every time? No, it doesn't. But God has chosen to move through his people whom he has put his spirit in. And I just want to encourage you, if you are waiting to be perfect, to assume that you have power, then you are waiting for something that will never come. And I want to, some of you have been sitting on the sidelines because you're like, well, you know, there's some things that I'm really wrestling with, some things that I'm really struggling with. And maybe just maybe when I break free from all of this, then God will send me his power. He calls you his children right now. He's put his spirit in you right now. And what if stepping into that authority is part of the way that you break free from the sin that has entangled you? I love, I love that the father doesn't say to his son, hey, we got this ring and it's yours after like a few months. Because really, (laughs) you remember what you did? Remember where you've been? I could never give this to you right now. We'll do that later. Man, I just, I, I just get this sense that there's so many Jesus followers that are waiting for authority to be perfect. Let me remind you, let me remind you that God uses a murderer named Moses to lead his people out of slavery. Let me remind you that God used an adulterous man named David to be king over the nation of Israel. Let me remind you that Jesus allowed a woman named Mary, who was a woman of ill repute, to anoint him, preparing him for his burial. Allow me to remind you that Jesus fully reinstated Peter to be a proclaimer of his gospel after he had denied him. As you read through the scriptures, you do not find a narrative of people who are perfect, therefore God uses them. You find people who are willing and humble and low before him in honesty and their brokenness saying, God, fill this clay pot with your eternal glory. And he does, and he does. And you may go, hey, well, Paulson, praise God. You may go, hey, Paulson, what? It seems like some people walk in more authority than others. And I would say, I I agree with that. But your authority increases when your intimacy deepens. Your authority increases when your intimacy deepens. And that's primarily because you have an easier time hearing the voice of God as he calls you and moves you forward. So the younger son is restored to honor and he's restored to authority. And listen to what he receives next. Get a robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. Why are the shoes important? I mean, who really cares about about shoes? Well, typically, servants and slaves didn't get shoes. So the picture of shoes are actually a picture where the father is saying to his son, I'm not taking you back as a servant or a slave. I am making you, once again, reminding you 
that you are my son. There's this old spiritual that says, all God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, I'm gonna put on my shoes and I'm gonna walk all over God's heaven. What a beautiful picture. I was, I was first taught this truth by a man who quickly became a friend of mine. His, his name is Dr. Jeff Brodsky. He runs an organization called Joy International. And as he tells the story, it was about 12 and a half years ago where he was um, on a garbage dump in Cambodia and was looking out on this dump and saw these kids that were living in or around it. And a number of the young girls, almost all of them, uh, had no shoes on. And he looked at his friend who was with him and he said, why don't any of the girls have shoes? And his friend looked at him and said, well, it's harder for them to run away. Uh, The predators come and they steal their shoes. So if they ever wanna come and get them and sell them into slavery, they're an easier target. And Jeff tells a story that he went back to his hotel room that evening and he just couldn't get this image out of his head. These girls without shoes. And his version of the story is that he went to put on his socks and he just couldn't even do it. And so he started praying and asking God how God would want him to enter into this darkness. And he decided that God was prompting him to go without shoes for a year. And um, he lives at about 8,000, 9,000 feet elevation in Colorado, in Bailey, Colorado. And um, so it's not advisable to walk around um, barefoot when it's that cold. Uh, But he felt prompted. A year came up and he said he just couldn't put his socks back on. It's been 12 and a half years. Dr. Jeff's been barefoot in solidarity with these girls, trying to bring attention to the fact um, that there are still atrocities going on in our world today. The shoes mean that the son is welcomed back as a son, not as a slave. They're a picture of restoration. And that restoration means freedom. It means freedom. I mean, you can't miss this amazing truth. As the son, he is free to leave his father again if he ever chooses to do so. When when this father gives his son back his shoes, he's saying, I'm not gonna prevent you from running away again, but I love you and I long for you to draw near to my heart. I want you to want to be here. But the truth of the matter is he abides in his father's affection, not in a prison. Not in a prison. God is not saying to his children, you have to stay. He's saying, I love you and I have good for you and I long to be in relationship with you, but you've got shoes on. I love the way that the apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome where he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you, but you, have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, no longer slaves. So you can cry out, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I don't have, I'm not here because of fear. I'm here because of love. You've got shoes on your feet in Christ. We are no longer defined by our sin. We are defined by our sonship. Come on, come on. Now, there's um, 
two, what I would say are massive implications of the fact that all of God's children have shoes. Okay. Um, Here's the first, here's the first is that in God's economy, affection is more important than production. Because if what God was ultimately interested in is you doing something for him, he would say, give me those shoes. And he would crack the whip and he would say, get to work. But that is not the posture of our God. And I don't know when that memo has been lost. I don't know when the narrative got twisted, Um, but I think that uh, Sky Jathani in his book with captures the essence of it so well. He, he diagnoses misconceptions about God and puts them in four categories. And one of the categories is that we view life as a for God life. Like, God, I'm gonna do this for you. I'm gonna work for you. And he talks about going to talk to a number of groups of college students about their view of God. And he asks them, when you think about God thinking about you, what's the image that comes to your mind? And the most dominant image people thought of when they thought about God thinking about them was disappointment. And he goes on to write in this book and here's what he says. He says, I did not blame the students for this failure. Somewhere in their spiritual formation, they'd been taught either explicitly or implicitly that what mattered was not God's love for them, but how much they could accomplish for And I just wonder if you've believed the same lie. I've got good news for you. All of God's children have shoes. And I want to assure you that God isn't interested in using you. He wants to be with you. It's the reason that Jesus would say to his disciples, he would say to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, It is he that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Our whole life is an outflow of finding ourselves in him. Here's the second truth. I just wanna speak over you today. There is more power in your life when you focus on your identity in Christ than there is when you focus on avoiding sin. More power when you remind yourself of who you are than trying to navigate as best you can the minefield of sin. Because when you're trying to avoid the minefield of sin, what are you focusing and concentrating on? Sin. And what Jesus would have us do is lift our eyes to remember who we are in him. We are chosen, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are made whole, we are called children of the most high God. So Neil Anderson will write, we don't serve God to gain his acceptance. We are accepted, so we serve him. We don't follow him to be loved. We are loved, so we follow him. It's not what we do that determines who we are. It is who we are that determines what we do. Oh, come on. That is so good. Because some of you, you're in this space and you're going, I need more power in my life. And your thought is, therefore, I've got to try to be perfect. But the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome and said, therefore, sin will have no dominion. Everybody say no dominion. No power over you. Why? Because you try really hard, because you white knuckle it and because you focus on sin and trying to avoid it. He goes, no, no, no. Sin will have no dominion over you for you are no longer under law, but you are under grace. 
You want power in your life? Recognize all God's children got shoes. That's the power. That's the power. Friends, grace is the power. Grace is the freedom. Grace is the gospel. Grace is the anchor. Grace is the engine. Grace is our story. Amen? Amen. Jesus went on and he closed this section by saying, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he was found and they began to celebrate. I love this, this picture of a, of a cow, which means a celebration. Notice the father's not like, um, hey, son, I'm so glad you're back. <clears throat> Can we review what you did to me? It'd be, it'd be really good, okay? And then I just wanna make sure you hit all the points. Um, and then, you know what? Once you prove yourself, once you prove that you're really back and you're not going anywhere and that you're not gonna do this again, and once you prove yourself, then we'll get on with the party. And I think that's what a lot of us believe. And that's why we presume that we sit at God's table and he welcomes us, but he doesn't restore us. The truth of the matter, he said, quickly bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes, and let's kill that cow because we are going to party. And I love this picture of God as the celebratory father. I love it because I, I can relate to it. It was um, my youngest son's birthday yesterday. And we have this tradition in our family where uh, on somebody's birthday, we all go around at dinner. We make a special dinner, whatever they choose. And we all go around and we speak a good word over that person. We tell that person what we love about them. And just getting to tell my son Reed yesterday how much I love just his sense of humor, his sensitivity, his creativeness, just um, his, his being a hard worker, being tenderhearted. Like I just, I love getting to speak those words over him. I love it. And what if at the awkward dinner that you're at, where you feel like, gosh, I shouldn't be here because of a thousand reasons. Thanks for welcoming me but I'm sure you really don't want me here. What if God's like, hey, put down the bowl of beef stew for a second and look up at me and let me tell you all the reasons that I love you and all the reasons that I'm for you and all the reasons that I genuinely am glad you're here. What if God is just like the celebratory father who throws a ridiculous, lavish party for his son who disrespected and shamed him and says, I'm so glad you're home. I'm so glad you're home. And see, some of you are here today and you may be just wrestling with, gosh, the the weightiness of decisions that you've made. I'm reminded of David after he was caught in the act of adultery and called out by the prophet Nathan. And he writes this, this prayer back to God. And part of his prayer is God restore to me the joy of my salvation. And that's a prayer that God loves to answer. I'm not sure where you're at today. I don't know if you feel like God is withholding from you or like he's punishing you. I don't know if you feel like you don't belong in this space because of places that you've been or things that you have done. I wanna speak a better word over you and it's a word of grace, friends. 
Your God is a God not only of welcome, but a God who says, I am making all things new. And I start right away. (laughs) So you too, you wear a robe of righteousness and honor. You get a ring and you carry his authority. All God's children got shoes. That means you do too. You have freedom. You abide in love. And your father is a celebratory father. And if you're one of his children, he throws a party for you. This is our story. This is our story. Praise God. The life that you and I were designed to live is grounded in the love that we were created to receive. So today, I pray that that love would wash over you like a tidal wave. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.